This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Zach. And uh, good morning, Trinity. I'm Pastor Ronnie Garcia. And if we've never had the pleasure of meeting, uh, I guess it's going to have to wait. Video will have to do for now. And all you mamas out there, uh, from the bottom of our heart, happy Mother's Day. We're so glad you are in our life. Now, if you're new, you have caught us in the middle of a sermon series on the Psalms. And in the middle of your Bible are 150 psalms, and they're songs, right? This is the hymn book of ancient Israel. Now, there are like happy, clappy psalms, and there are also like sad, soulful songs. Today, we are going to study Psalm 19. And as a point of trivia, this is C.S. Lewis's very favorite psalm, right? Like... And now this is a big deal because you know him as like an author of children's fiction, but he was actually a professor at Cambridge on middle, uh, medieval literature. So he knows a little about good ancient literature. And he says this is the best. See, for him, he was captured by this fluid beauty of nature flowing into the beauty of God's law. Now, that shouldn't surprise you and I too much because we know that the author is David. Now, let me tell you about David. He was the son of Jesse, had seven brothers. He was the youngest, so he got shepherding duties. So night after night in his younger life, he would stay out with his flock, and he studied profoundly two books, the book of nature and the book of God's law, and he was an expert in both. Psalm 19 is his poetic reflection of God speaking in those two ways. Now, as we read and study Psalm 19, what I want you to understand and see is that God is speaking to you. You hear me? God is speaking, pouring forth speech to you. And the question we have that we're left with is, am I listening? Am I listening? So if you are a note taker, Uh, We have a two-point sermon from verses 1 through 6. We're going to see the speech of nature. And then verses 7 through 14, the speech of God's word. And we are going to ask, God is speaking, am I listening? With that, let's turn our attention to Psalm 19, the very best part of the whole sermon. And it reads like this. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy." Its rising is, is from the ends, end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God, these words, they abide forever. May he add blessing to the reading of his word through the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen. Maybe you know the name Francis Collins. He is a world-renowned scientist. He's the guy who headed up the team that mapped out the DNA sequence of the Human Genome Project, right? So the Human, uh, the human Genome Project, that's Francis Collins. Guys in South Boston would say this guy is wicked smart, right? Now, when he thought about creation and existence itself, he says that Existence, scientifically speaking, is highly unlikely. And so he writes a book. In one of the chapters of his book, he talks about three possibilities for existence. And he illustrates it like this. Imagine a criminal gets sentenced to death by firing squad. So he lines up against the wall. And then 50 expert marksmen come in, point their rifles directly at him 10 yards away. They count to three, shots ring out. And all 50 expert marksmen at 10 yards away missed their guy. How do you explain this? He says, listen, there's basically three possibilities. Possibility one, these marksmen all, however unlikely and improbable, all had the worst day of shooting in their life on the exact same day. Option two, there are infinite parallel universes where this exact event is happening. And we just happen to live in the universe where they all miss at the same time. And because there's infinite universes you know, probability goes up. And then there's option three, that these expert marksmen missed on purpose because there was something more directed going on that we don't know about, right? So he uses that as an illustration to describe the possibilities of existence. He says, listen, uh, against all scientific probability, you can believe that out of nothing, existence happened. Option two, there are infinite alternate and parallel universes, and we just happen to live in the universe where existence spontaneously happened, right? Or option three, we exist in a universe against all probability because there was something more directed and intentional directing it. Now, all three options are possible, I suppose, but option three feels the most plausible, the most plausible. Now, you can say it. No, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop right there. See what you're doing there. That requires faith in God. You would be right, of course. But here's the problem. If you discard three, which you can, you're still left with options one and two. And those require faith as well. See, I'm inviting us to have a little bit of intellectual integrity because all of us are playing on the field of faith. 
These are things you can prove or disprove. Listen, the, the philosopher's got my back on this, so don't write me an email, right? Now, for King David, who's writing Psalm 19, he thought it was just utterly obvious, man. He, he would look at the mountains. He'd look at the prairies. He'd see the sea, and he'd say, all of creation is absolutely preaching at us. I mean, we're, we're constantly being proselytized every time we look up into the heavens. And it's interesting. This is, look at the words that David chooses to use. You can see there in verse 1, look there in your text. The heavens declare. 1b, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Verse 2, the day pours out speech. Verse 2b, the night reveals knowledge. I mean, you're, you're absolutely being proselytized. Nature is speaking to you. And you can't say that you don't understand that language. Look at what he says there in verse 4. He says, their vo voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Everyone's hearing it. Every culture, every language, you see. Another guy who is wicked smart, John Calvin, he puts it like this. He says, nature is the theater of God's glory. Man, you can't look around and not see his handiwork. He is the great artist. Listen, if you don't hear God speaking, it is because you are highly motivated not to listen. Our kids are born believing. I mean, we're the ones who have to turn them into atheists. You see, I remember my, my daughter, one of my twins, Mia, you know, she would, when she was young, she'd walk out and she'd look at the sky and see a full moon sitting on the horizon and she would just like slap me and say, shut up. I'm like, no one's even talking. Like, why is she saying to shut up? He's like, she's like, man, the sun and the moon and the stars are talking to her, man, it's preaching. And she's just reverently just taking it all in. That's where her heart goes. And so why is it that we become deaf to the, to the speech of nature? Is it just because we're all getting more and more scientific? Because right, Francis Collins, wicked smart guy, he doesn't think so. Think about Bill Anders, the first guy, Apollo 8, to orbit the moon. He's looking at the moon and the earth from his vantage point, And you know what he does? He begins to read Genesis 1. Buzz Aldrin, when he lands on the moon, looking at outer space, this most incredible thing, this incredible vantage point, what does he do? He stops, and he takes communion on the moon. Right? These guys were sure that this is all God's handiwork. Now, there's one guy who's different. You might know the name, Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is a British comedian and a screenwriter, quite bright, but he's also a very outspoken atheist, he was being interviewed one time, and the interviewer said, Mr. Fry, just humor me for a second. Imagine you were to die, and you wake up on the other side, and you realize you were wrong, and that God is real, and he's there. What question would you want to ask God? Now, at this, you can see, like, Stephen Fry getting viscerally upset and agitated and angry. He goes, what would I ask God? I'll tell you what I would ask God. Why did you make bone cancer in children, right? What about famine, God? Or maybe, maybe we would say and add, what about COVID-19, God? Here's what I want you to know, is that Stephen Wright, Stephen Fry is right to be angry about bone cancer in children. 
You should be angry about it. I should be angry about it. It's not that we're not angry about these things. It's that we have a fundamentally different narrative, lens, and perspective by which to interpret all of this. But here's what I want you to notice about Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is profoundly angry at a God that he does not believe exists. No one gets that angry at a fairy tale. And you know what this means? It's that Stephen Fry actually does believe that he exists, so he's just mad at him. He's mad. And so Romans 1 tells us that, man, we'll look around and hear the speech, but we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. Have you ever heard the saying, uh, he is dead to me? Like I could say to Jeff, Jeff, you are dead to me. It's not that Jeff all of a sudden ceases to exist or that he is dead. It just means what? That I'm cutting off relationship and I am going, to, I think it's beneficial for me to live as if he doesn't exist. Stephen Fry is saying to God, you are dead to me. I think my life would be better without you. And here's why this is all so instructive for us is that we need to ask where there are places in our life where there's unexplainable sadness and fear and disappointment that motivate us to believe that God is not there, that God does not exist. See, because disbelief is just fear and anger and sadness in disguise. And I want us to have some intellectual integrity about these underlying interests. Now, we can see then how the speech of creation can be, you know, uh, misunderstood, misinterpreted. And so we actually need the speech of nature to be clarified, right? Right? So but we, we, here's one way that we misunderstand uh, the speech of nature. Some people you know, we saw some people look at the sky and say, see, there is no God in there. But other people actually look at creation, and what do they do? They worship it. They begin to worship. Like, so, like in ancient Egypt, they looked at the sun, and they're like, that thing is impressive. That must be God. And so they worshiped sun God. So all the Hebrews were like, no, that's just the handiwork of God. Now, that might sound old, but, you know, we still do the same thing today. We have this sort of pantheism or neo-pantheism. Have you guys ever seen that movie, The Avatar, right? Blue people with weird tails, right? What was the whole premise? What was the whole context of the movie? That there's Mother Earth, right? Everyone's connected and they're all worshiping. Mother Earth gives oracles. They're all worshiping the earth. You know why we hope that's absolutely not true? It's because if Mother Earth was our God and would speak to us, what would she say? Let me tell you what she would not say. You know what we can't hear her say? I love you. You're forgiven. Although other people abandon you, I will never abandon you. I can make you whole. You won't hear those words from creation. And so we need some clarifying. We need something to clarify the speech of nature. And so I think David in Psalm 19, does this little transition from verses in verses 5 and 6. So if you'll look there, you'll see that David imagines the sun busting through the doors of heaven like this bridegroom on his wedding day just 
pumped, he's amped, the sun and its heat, right, are the animating center of all of creation. So nothing is untouched by the warmth and the rays of the sun. Well, in the same way that the sun is the animating center of all creation, of nature, God's word is the animating center of our lives. And this gets us to our second point, the speech of God's word. I read uh, a few years ago a story about a young father. He has itty-bitty kids. I mean, they're itty-bitty. And he was in the army, and he got orders to be shipped off to Afghanistan. So he knows, as a good soldier, all the risks of war. So what he did is before he left, he recorded 100 vignettes, 100 little videos of himself teaching and giving devotionals to his children, hundred of them. And he wrote tons and tons and tons of letters to them. And then, of course, he was shipped off, and when he was there, tragedy did indeed happen, and he died in war. Now, for all of us, we, of course, uh, are sad over that, because why? One of, part of our sadness is that those young children would never get to know their father. But is that true in this case? See, these children get their father's words. This father actually gives us them tons of words. They can actually know what their father is like, know about his love. And in fact, they can sit under their father's teaching with these videos. I share with you because that's similar to what we have here. We can, we can know our father. We can hear his words. He gave, he gave us words, and we can sit under them. Well, look at, look at how he does this. There's all these synonyms starting in verse 7. Look there, back in your Bibles. Verse 7, it says, The law of God, 7b, the testimony of the Lord. Verse 8a, the precepts of the Lord. 8b, the commandment of the Lord. Verse 9, the rules of the Lord. Those are all synonyms, right, for the words of the Lord. And you don't stand over those words. You sit under these words, right? You don't edit these words. You let them edit you. And if you do, you'll enter into a really meaningful relationship with your father. And that relationship has all kinds of benefits. And in fact, David lists a few. Look there in verse 7. It says, man, the precepts of the Lord can make you wise. Don't you want wisdom? Don't you want to be a wise person? Because listen, our eyes can actually be deceived by optical illusions. So God's word are like these lenses that kind of straighten out our vision, help us see clearly. Look there, I love it, in verse 12, it says, his precepts, his teachings, his words help you discern your errors. I love, look there in verse 13, I love it. He talks about the precepts help us see our presumptuous sins. Yeah, that, that has been really meaningful to me this week, because here's why, listen, I have a son who is 15 years old. And I am just now in my life presently seeing patterns in my heart and in my patterns of relating that are really messed up, that are really broken, that really need to change. But my son has had to put up with them for 15 years. And part of me is tempted to say, what's the point? I've already screwed this up. I can't change. But God's word meets me in that place and says, oh yeah, no, no, no. You can change. Don't be presumptuous. It's, it's lovingly exposing that. God's saying, I'll, I'll deal with your son, right? But you can change. You can grow. Sit under this. Sit under it. Look there, the second part of verse 7. It talks about reviving the soul. That God's word can revive the soul. 
I love that language of reviving. It's like your heart is dehydrated and malnourished. And it is, and it is showing you, giving you an accurate assessment of who you are. So on one hand, you know you're a little bit bad, but God's word is saying, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. It is way worse than you know. You're far more sinner than, sinful than you have ever even dared to explore, right? But at the same time, and hear me on this, it also says you are more loved and more cherished and more esteemed and more desired than you've ever even dared to hope. You don't even want to dare to hope it. it just, it's too, almost too good to be true. God's word does all of that, humbles you and, and lifts you up all at the same time. And listen, all of those benefits you will get, but you'll also give them up if God's word is not the animating center of your life. And we must be lovingly present, lovingly present with God's word regularly. Do you know what love is? Do not listen to Hollywood. They have no idea. Love is not an emotion. I love how one author says, he says, Love is being commit is committed attending, right? Committedly attending to something. So whatever you regularly attend to or invest in, that is what you love. So you might say that you love God's word, but if you committedly attend to Netflix, social media, or your body, or your bank account, then you're life tells a very different story. I mean, maybe you like God's word, but that's not what you love. See, you will attend to the things that you think will bring you the good life, right? That's where your love is. Those things that you attend to are the things that you think will optimize your happiness and make you whole and fix you. What do you sit under? Will you sit under God's word every day? Will you allow it to be the animating center of your life? Will you be fully present with Jesus by regularly being fully present with his word? Read it. Savor it. Think about it like drinking a fine wine and just swashing, sloshing around your, your tongue, feeling the fragrance in or just enjoying it. Would you just enjoy God's word? Memorize it. When you rise and when you go down to sleep, when you wake up in the middle of the night, will you go through these verses? Will you just sit under truth? Will you let it be the animating center of your life? Let me conclude here. Let me just finish. Psalm 18, this magnificent work, is this. It's telling you this, that God is speaking. Will you listen? Will you listen? And so the book of nature is speaking to you. It's enchanting you, but it can be misinterpreted. And so we need a little bit of clarification. And so the book of the law brings that clarification, is speaking to you. And the question is, will you committedly attend to it? It's interesting to me that David wrote this. You know why? Because if you know anything about the Old Testament, David lived a rough life. I mean, that guy did way worse thing than any of you jokers have done. He lived an awful, awful life. He did really some really bad things. And yet David is the one finding so much joy in God's words and God's law. Look, and I'll just finish right here. Look there at verse 10 with me. 
He says about the precepts and the words of God, he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. He's like, this is better than my account. And he has so much money. He's like, this is way better. And then look, continue there in verse 10. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. David is saying God's word is delicious. Man, he's just stuffing his face with God's word. You can see dripping all over him. He just loves it, wants more and more of it. And the question that I have is why? Like how, why does David think God's word is delicious? How did he get there? You would think that he would go to God's word, see his law, and it would make him feel small. It would just show him how, like, what a mess, all of his failures, all the awful things that he's ever done in his life, and just reinforce that narrative that he does not live up. But he thinks these words are delicious and finer, more valuable than gold. How? It's because David listened to the speech of God, you see. See, years earlier... God said to David, through you, I am going to bring one who will heal you, rescue you, redeem you, save you. Not just you, but everyone you know and love. And in the New Testament, the disciple John says, he came. And you know what John calls him? The living and incarnate word. Jesus is the definitive speech of God. And he's speaking to you. And what does Jesus' life say? What what is he saying to you? He's saying, I love you. You're totally worth it. I'll do anything to have you. And I know you've blown it, but you belong to me. Come home. I'll heal you. Man, will you sit under that truth? Will you stuff your face with that speech coming from God's heart? That is what Psalm 19 wants for you. Will you carefully attend to it? Will you make this the animating center of your life? Amen.